I want you to turn your Bibles uh, to the book of Luke. This is something we talked about last night, and, and I want you to know I'm not just, <laughs> it wasn't that I just got in late and didn't have time to prepare something else. I got lots of things I want to share with you, but I really would rather share what I believe the Lord is saying to us today. Um, and last night, there was just a real different kind of atmosphere. I think it was the, the kind of environment that people are open to receiving. And uh, one of the things that Kelly had said um, Saturday morning really struck me because she, she talked about that story, and a lot of us love this story. I know I've preached it, and, and there's books been written about it, that story where Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, are with the army of Saul. King David is off with his group somewhere else because Saul is still trying to kill David. But Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his armor bearer, are tired of just sitting around waiting. So what do they do? They say, hey, let's just go up to the garrison of the Philistines and let's show ourselves. And let's see if God is with us. If they call out to us and say, hey, come over here, we'll know God is with us and we'll take them. And two guys took a whole garrison of Philistines. We all know the story. That's a great story. It's true. It's, 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 it's got a lot of, lot of truth in it. Um, but it was what... It was, it was as she kept reading that something struck me that not only after that, that triggered something that Jonathan and his armor bearer triggered something with that victory, Saul and all of his warrior, all of his army joined the battle and, and, and they began to defeat the Philistines. But one thing I hadn't paid too much attention before until she said it was that there were several a large number of Israelites that had defected to the Philistines that came back. And I hadn't really given a lot of thought to that. What would make a whole group of Israelites defect to the Philistines? We know at one point, David started fighting for the Philistines. He didn't fight against Israel, but he fought for the Philistines against other nations because Saul was trying to kill him. But this group wasn't like David. See, David, when he'd fight for the Philistines, They'd say, go, go fight Saul's armies. Go fight the Israelites over here. And David would pretend they were going to fight the Israelites. And then they'd actually fight Israelites, the, the, Israel's enemies and come back and say, hey, uh, we didn't bring any prisoners back. So, you know, there was no proof that they didn't fight the Israelites. But this group was different. These defectors were fighting against their own people. How would you feel about that? Don't you think that'd be kind of demoralizing? You go to battle and you don't just see Philistines, you see your own countrymen fighting against. What would lead someone to defect to the other side? I imagine there was a great deal of hopelessness at the time. Saul was out of his mind, trying to kill David. There was division. You know, people often leave when there's great division. You see it in church, right? Every church has experienced that at some point. There's, if there's division in the church... People will leave. People on the fringes will leave because, you know, I, I don't need this. Hopelessness. These people gave up at some point and, and something happened when two guys went and said, if God's with us, we can take it. People started coming home. And I put myself in the shoes of those Israelites who'd been loyal the whole time. How would you feel about that guy coming back? Would you feel comfortable fighting alongside that, that man who had 
had defected to the other side and fought against his own people. It might be difficult to accept them again, wouldn't it? Yet that is the story of all of us. At some point, we were all rebels. At some point, we all fought for the other side, whether or not we knew we were fighting. God was so merciful as to draw us back. For some people, that's, you know, that's your life BC, before Christ. For others, you may have had a period where you, you didn't fight for the other side, but you really drew back, and you felt like a rebel. You felt like a quitter. You felt like a defector. Thinking about Isaiah 53, where it describes Jesus taking on the sins of the world. And there's a, there's a section there that always gets me when it says all of us like sheep had gone astray. Each one of us had turned after our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And what grabs me about that is that those two statements, he says all of us were like sheep who wandered away. Each one went after his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus. So what we're about to read in Isaiah, what you'd be about to read in Isaiah 53 about all that Jesus suffered is a result of sheep going their own way. Now think about the society we live in. Think about the culture we live in. It is a culture that encourages you to go your own way. Find your own path. Do your own thing. Be a rebel. When we use the word rebel today, it is almost never used badly. Rebel is a good thing. Back when I was a teenager, that was how, you know, the, the cool youth pastor with the goatee would get, get across. No. Jesus was a rebel, man. Let's be rebels. All right, cool. Let's be rebels. We sure felt like rebels at times because you go back to your school and you're different than everybody else. But in reality, Jesus must have seemed like a rebel because he didn't fit society. But in reality, he was defined by submission to God. He's probably the furthest thing from a rebel. He rebelled against the world system, but that rebellion was just the result of him being submitted, fully submitted to God. I mean, if you could think of anybody in the Bible that was more submitted to God than Jesus, I think you're reading it wrong. Jesus said, I don't do anything. I do nothing of my own initiative. Zero. I don't do anything. I don't say anything I didn't hear him say. I don't do anything he didn't tell, I didn't see him do. So Jesus is the ultimate uh, example of perfect submission. You know the old hymn, perfect submission, perfect delight. And that a one, that, that's a foreign thought to us. We say submission does not equal delight. We just sang, oh, no longer slaves. Doesn't submission mean slavery? No. Submission to God is freedom. Submitting to the world, slavery. Conforming to the world, Slavery but being transformed into his image and conforming to the image of the son, that is freedom. Jesus was the freest man and yet was also the most submitted. Didn't do anything of his own. So you can say Jesus was a rebel if you're judging him by the culture, but if you're judging him by his actions, what motivated his actions? Jesus didn't do things just to tick people off. Well, maybe a couple of things. But his, his reason of existence, his purpose, was to do the Father's will. He said that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. My food 
is to do the will of the one who sent me to accomplish. That was what Jesus thrived. So all of our iniquity that fell on Jesus was a result of us going our own way. We were all the rebel sheep. The next verse says, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then it goes on to say, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Not a coincidence. That right after he said, the rebel sheep went their own way, the Lord caused that iniquity to fall on Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter because that was our death. We were the rebel sheep that should have gone to slaughter. He went for us. Thank God. But here we stand, no longer rebels, accepted into the family of God, embraced. And I got to be honest with you, even after that happens, there are moments where I felt rebellious. There are moments where I felt like a rebel. And I had, to, I had to experience once again that God's mercy was greater than my failure. His grace was greater than my sin. His forgiveness was greater than my own need to go my own way. So when you think about those defects coming home, I think there's plenty of people in the body of Christ, even after they're born again, that give in to hopelessness given to discouragement, given to disillusionment. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about a guy in 1 Corinthians. He said, this guy is really not doing something, I mean, he's doing something very bad, and he's, he's poisoning the rest of you. He says, you gotta, you gotta, this guy refuses to repent. <laughs> he says, so tell him, don't bother coming until, you can, until you're willing to open your heart to God, until you're willing to repent. That'd be a tough thing to do. But by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, he says, this guy has, and we don't know if it's the same guy, I just make an assumption there that it is. He says, this guy has truly repented. So I've accepted him. Paul says, I've forgiven him. I've accepted him. I want you to do the same thing. Then he says, I want you to affirm your love for him. Now, I could have you turned all these places, but for the purpose of time, I'm going to trust you to look up this stuff on your own. I'm quoting scripture, believe me, I know. Some of you might say, I don't know. It's, it's New American Standard. I'm quoting it. You can go back and check it out. If you want references, ask me. But he says, affirm your love for this guy. When we get to Luke, and we're, we're going to turn there right now. Towards the end of Luke, there's an awkward conversation that Jesus has with his friends. In Luke 22, So much happened over the dinner table that night, the Last Supper. A big chunk of John, the book of John. So much, you know, all that great wisdom that we get from John 14, 15, 16, the prayer in John 17. All of this is taking place at the table. And when you think about it, all, all that Jesus told us about the, pretty much all that Jesus told us about the Holy Spirit happened in that Last Supper. Can you think about that? I mean, we, we would expect Jesus to spend three years preparing them for this. He sat them down at dinner and said, by the way, I've hinted at this, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm about to go away. I've been telling you that. You guys keep fighting me on it. One time it says, Peter, he, Jesus said, I'm going to have to suffer these things. I'm going to have to die. And it says, Peter took him aside. 
and began to reprimand him, saying, Heaven forbid, pity yourself, Lord. Can you imagine having the guts to take Jesus aside and reprimand him and think you're doing a good job because you didn't do it publicly? And yet Jesus turns around and publicly says, get behind me, Satan. Anybody in the room here had me call you Satan? I'm not Jesus. Don't, don't mistake me. But anybody called someone else in the church Satan? No, right? How would you feel if Jesus called you Satan? He didn't really call him Satan. He was addressing Satan. Addressing Satan, but Peter was obviously making the link. I'm not Satan, but he's saying, I'm saying what Satan wants me to say. What did Jesus say? You are a dangerous trap to me. That Satan, you are a dangerous trap to me because you're trying to get me to see things from a world perspective rather than God's perspective, a human perspective rather than God's perspective. So Jesus has been preparing this for this, but then at the table, he says, I'm going I'm to die. It's tonight, but it's good for you if I go away. Because if I go away, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And everything you've seen in me, he's going to be that to you in each and every one of you. Then he says this in, in Luke 22, They've been arguing about who's the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's going to get to, to call the shots? And he says, you've missed the whole point of my kingdom. The first will be last. The last will be first. The servant of all will be the greatest. Then he says, in verse 28, Luke twenty-two twenty-eight, you are those who have stood by me in my trial. Now think about that. The greatest trial he's about to endure is still ahead of him. But he looks back and he sees that he's gone through trials already. And these are the 11 that stuck with him. At some point, I mean, there's 12, but Judas during the middle of the meal got up. The really 11 stuck with him. When the crowds left, when, when Jesus became unpopular, they stuck with him. Can you imagine at that moment, you might have felt like we are the guy. We're the crew. We're the squad. We're the, we're the team. We're the ones that stuck it. We are the strong. It's very easy to take pride in your own loyalty. Take pride in your own ability to stay. But our pride, our boasting should not be in our loyalty, should not be in our willpower, should not be in our strength. Our boasting must be in the Lord. It's not our great strength holding on to Jesus that's kept us. It's his great strength holding on to us. Do you need to hold on to Jesus? Yes. But without him holding on to you, you would have been lost a long time ago. He is the rock that the house is built on. You are those who've stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he turns and he says, Simon, Simon. Now remember, this is Peter, and Jesus was the one that named him Peter. Simon's name, Shimon, means reed. Can you think of something, when you think of a reed, do you think of something solid? No, a reed is shaken, a reed is easily bent, and a reed is easily broken. Shimon does not sound like a strong name, a name that will last. It's, it's bendable, it's breakable. 
So Jesus, at some point in Simon's life, says, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter, or, or in the Hebrew, Cephas. I'm going to call you Rock. I'm changing you from a bendy reed. I'm going to start calling you a solid rock. Thank God that God sees things in us we don't even see in ourselves. The angel says to Gideon, hail, valiant warrior, while Gideon's cowering behind the great press. So God says to him, your new name is Rock. You were called Reed, I'm going to call you Rock. But here at this point, he goes back to Simon. And I don't think it's to insult him or to say you're shaky. I think it's because this is a tender moment. And he goes back to the name that Simon's mother and father called him. He goes back to that because this is an intimate, caring moment that Jesus is offering. Simon, Simon, behold or pay attention. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What happens when you sift wheat? Separate the chaff from the real thing. What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to see, he's trying to prove, I would imagine, that these disciples aren't going to last. Their faith isn't real. That when you strike the shepherd, sheep will scatter. When I kill him, you'll all fall away. That's the thought. And you know what? It sure seemed like that was true. Remember the moment when, when Jesus is arrested? See, most of the disciples just scattered. They ran away. In fact, it says one, the, one, of the, one account in the Gospels tells us one guy was running so fast that one of the guards caught him, caught his cloak. He just ran right out of his clothes. Can you imagine a naked disciple running out of the garden? You are the ones that have stood by me in my trials. But where are you now? Peter makes an effort to make a last stand. He draws his sword. My assumption, I could be wrong. This is just an assumption. It's not scripture. My assumption is that he was aiming for the seam of the helmet. There was an old, there was an old ancient warfare idea when sometimes you'd have the, the helmets that had the seam down the middle. These are temple guards, so I really don't know exactly what they're wearing. But he's going for that crack the seam, bust the helmet wide open. I don't know if that's what he's trying to do. I don't know why, but somehow he chops the guy's ear off. Which if he's a professional soldier, that's not the first thing you try to do, is it? Now let's see a fight without an ear. <laughs> I have you now, earless soldier. Chops his ear off. Jesus sticks it back on his head like a Mr. Potato Head. Thunk. And then Peter's shaking because he doesn't know how to handle this. Peter and an unnamed disciple, we assume it's John, sneak to the trial. Everybody else is gone. They at least sneak into the courtyard of the high priest to see what's going on with Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. He says he's demanded permission to sift you like wheat in verse 32. But I have prayed for you. I want you to know that that but is very important. Satan has demanded this. To sift you like wheat, to test you, to separate you from me. But I have prayed for you. Now, one thing we've lost in the English language is a plural for you. We were talking about this, Aaron and me, a little bit ago. I am a, I, I got a Texan mother over here. She is plural. What would she say? Y'all. Somebody told me the other day that Southerners use y'all for singular and plural. I said, those aren't real Southerners. They need to be sent to Boston. They're not real. 
Real Southerners use y'all plural, all right? So you singular, y'all plural. In Canada, we say you guys, right? Or the dreaded yous. I do not like yous. What do yous have? Oh, don't say that again. I'll have an extra helping of not any more of that. So y'all, so just, uh, we're not Texans. We don't need to be. We are Canadians and we're proud of. God made us Canadian. Some of us. Washingtonian, Texan. All right. But here, let's just imagine, because in the Greek, there's a plural and there's a singular. When he says Satan has demanded to sift you, that's plural. Satan has demanded to sift you guys, y'all, like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And then he gets back to singular. I've prayed for you. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I'm praying for you. What is he praying? For your willpower? No. Am I praying that you'll be strong? No, I'm praying that your faith. We have to know that, 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 you know, and Peter wrote about this later, much later in his life. He said, when we are, when we're facing that persecution and when everything is pulled and with everything is stretched, it is our faith that will prove itself to be real. That when every, when, when the, when the armies of Rome, when, when, when the, the agents of, of the synagogue try to kill us and try to torture us, it is our faith that will hold us. Because our faith is not of us, it's of God. He says this, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you've turned again, strengthen. We'll come back to that point in a minute. But he said to them, Lord, with you I'm willing. I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Peter was insulted by this. Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today till you have denied three times. He said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressor. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. I want to read what he says in the New Living. He says, but now take your money in a traveler's bag. You don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophet will come true. Jesus was just telling Peter, you're going to be a rebel. You're going to betray me. You're going to let me down. But I haven't given up on you. I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And then Jesus, as discouraging as it must have been to have your savior, your king, your master, your rabbi tell you, you're going to fail me. How encouraging must it have been for Jesus to follow that up and say, but you will turn. You'll turn back. And when you do, I believe, I know because it's my prayer for you. You know, Jesus prays in John 17. He says to the Father, Father, I have kept these ones in your name. I kept them. He just said, you stood with me in my trials. But the truth of the matter was, I kept you there. I kept you. Why didn't they, why didn't they leave when everyone else left? 
Peter turns to Jesus and says, you alone have the words of life. Jesus just said, you're going to go with everybody else? They said, no, we're staying with you. They might have thought it was our loyalty that kept us. They might have thought it was our strength that kept us. But the reality was it was Jesus that kept us. In the body of Christ, there is a lot of fear. What if I What if I let him down? Popular song when I grew up was, what if I stumble? And many people have that, that fear all the time. What if I do? We have to have more faith in him than we do in ourselves. More faith in him than we have fear about our, our, our possibility of us failing him. There's probably going to be a moment in your life where you'll look back and say, I wish I didn't do that. There's probably going to be a moment where you say, boy, I, 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 I shouldn't have done that. We have to believe in it. The fact that he's not just Savior past tense, he is Savior present. But the time has come that I will be counted among the rebels. You know, when the, when the scripture tells us about this moment that Peter betrayed Jesus, one of the gospels tells us that the last time Peter betrayed Jesus, that the rooster crowed and it said he made eye contact. Think about that for me. Jesus was there the whole time. The whole time Peter denied him, Jesus was there. He could have stopped it. He could have said, Peter, what are you doing? Just watched. Can you imagine the guilt that Peter must have felt? He betrayed Jesus and then he looked and knew that Jesus knew. That's been me. I've been there. I imagine you have too. Thank God he paid for our rebellion. Should that lead you to rebel and say, well, it's paid for. I might as well use it. No, that's nobody who loves Jesus and draws near to desires hell. Right? The closer we get, the less we want that. More we want to, more we want to, to know him, know his resurrection. And that is what we're talking about, resurrection. We're talking about a whole group of disciples that fail. You could make the case that maybe John didn't fail because John was at the cross. At least he stuck with him. Everybody else ran away. Everybody else failed. And yet Jesus shows up. He prays for Peter. And what's Peter's job? Peter's job isn't just to turn. Peter's job is once you turn, help them, strengthen them. And I want you to know, no matter if you identify with the rebel or you identify with the ex-rebel, you have something to do today. If you are here today and you're the rebel, you've turned, or maybe you've just allowed distance to go, God is ever, ever present to receive the prodigal son back home. In Luke 15, there are three stories of lost things. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's a lost son. In every one of those parables, the lost get found. Every one of those parables, we are commanded to rejoice because the lost are found. Sheep get lost because of their nature. Coins get lost because of neglect. Sons get lost because of choice. But for all of those things, there is a father that loves you enough to find you. 
that moment where the prodigal son comes to his What must have those Israelite defectors felt when they came back? What must Peter have felt when he came back to the disciples and showed up on the door where they were hiding out and said, here I am, knowing that they all knew what he did. Much as the church home, the people that have turned, as much as the church is home, the people that have devoted and committed their lives to Jesus, the church has to be a place where we welcome the rebels back and we affirm our love. And while they are yet in, even in a time of rebellion, pray as Jesus prayed for them. And we strengthen as Peter did for the rest of You can look back in your life and say, I used to be that rebel. I betrayed. I was ashamed. I denied. But here I am serving Jesus. Then look around and find that person, find those people that you are sent to strengthen. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't bypass Peter? Why didn't Jesus say, I'm praying for you all that your faith would not fail? I think it was important that Peter take, take part in the process of restoring people. I think it was part of his own restoration. Part of his own, re, you know, rebuilding was being able to go and turn and strengthen someone else. You see, here's what that, that, that sin conscious idea will have you do. That when you have fallen back, when you've taken a step back, when you've shrunk back, Something tells you you'll never be that same person again. You've let, it, you've let everybody down. They all know it. I mean, what right does Peter have to tell anybody anything? Can you imagine that first disciple he comes back to and attempts to strengthen them? They could have easily said, who are you to talk to me? God. <laughs> as God, as God said to Peter later, don't ever call unclean what I've if I called you back, if I called you righteous, if I called you holy, if I call you a saint, who are you to call yourself something else? There is a lie that comes in our heads, that comes in our hearts, that say, once I failed, once I let everybody down, what right do I have to go and tell somebody else to come back? You have every because you are the righteousness of God, Christ. It's about time that you believe more in his imputed righteousness than your own inability to live up to your standards or his. I'm not trying to give you a pass, an excuse to just live a mediocre life. No, this is the opposite. Some of you have let yourself be distant and God is drawing you back. Some of you have been drawn back a long time ago and all of us need to turn our hearts towards him and we also need to look around and say, I am not just somebody who's experienced reconciliation. I am a minister of reconciliation. What does he say? Can we just read it? I mean, rather than me quoting it, you skeptically thinking, I wonder if he's really reading it. <laughs> oh, man. In Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he speaks of reconciliation. He speaks of our, our part to play in reconciliation. 
And I'd just like to read that to you as we get to the end of our time together this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll wrap it up with this thought. Or this thought connected to a couple of thoughts. Verse 15. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died the rebel's death for the rebel's Can we just settle that in our own hearts? He died the rebel's death for my rebellion. When I decided it was a good idea to go my own way, my iniquity fell on him. So I don't look back lightly on my rebellion because I know what it cost. It cost a lot. I know it did. Look back with gratitude, a weighty gratitude, real. So it's joy. You know, it's that, that, that joy that we're harder to describe. It's joy that's thick. You know what I mean? He says, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Wouldn't it be easy to recognize Peter according to the flesh? Wouldn't it be easy to recognize the the rebel who walked away and spent five years doing whatever? Serving the enemy? I don't know. It'd be easy. And we realized we were all rebels. We all had to come back. Now, I'm not talking about people that leave church. I'm talking about the people that leave Jesus. Seem to at least. Thank God he didn't leave them. It says, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You have the word of reconciliation. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have it. You've been given it. God did the work. Jesus did the work. You've been given the job of spreading it. What does he say? God didn't count their trespasses against them. So if he didn't do it, what right do we have? Then he says this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. God Why are you making an appeal through us? Why don't you just bypass us? See, that's my question. God, why don't you just bypass us? Listen, you'd you'd make the case better than I would. You'd preach it better than I would. God is not trying to bypass you. We have been given the word. 
reconciliation. Just like God, Jesus could have bypassed Peter and said, Peter, when you turn, just don't spread your own rebellion. Don't spread your doubt to everybody else. He doesn't say that. He says, when you've turned, strengthen your brother. He gave Peter that job. Now he's reconciled us, and he gives you the word of reconciliation. I've thought about that. I've thought about the conversations I've had over coffee. I've thought about the conversations I've had over the phone where I am pleading with someone, hey, turn back to God. I'm turn back to Jesus. Don't you know that that life you're living is no life at all? Sometimes we think we're the ones that have to make the most impassioned plea, but I love this. It's as though God were making the appeal through us. Imagine. Imagine if God took your rebel friend out to coffee. Imagine if Jesus sat across the table from that kid that fell away or that friend that went the other direction. Do you think that he'd be successful? We would think so, even though people rejected Jesus. They still have a choice, don't they? They still have a choice. But boy, does it make, fill me with hope to think, as I sit down at that table, If I put my trust in God, that it's his message, it's his word of reconciliation, that it's his desire to reconcile all things to himself, it's his desire to reconcile them to himself, then I can sit down at the table and say, I'm not making my appeal. God is making his appeal through me. Whoa, how much does God love that person? How much does Jesus desire them? How much are they wanted in the family of God? Well, the answer is found in the price that was paid for them. That's how you know the worth of something. How much is someone willing to pay? And he was willing to pay everything. That's how much they're worth. That's why when we make that appeal, he's making Why it was important that the Corinthian church receive the one who had rebelled and affirm their love for that's why it was important for Peter to go to his brothers. Even after he had, he had probably every reason to think, what right do I have? I, I, I betrayed Jesus. I let him down more than anybody. Yet God gave him the task. When I, I've prayed for you, Satan has desired to sift you all, but I've prayed for you singular. Now when you've turned, go find that. Strengthen. I believe there's a part to play in prayer. I mean, if Jesus prayed that their faith may not fail, we should pray that their faith may not fail. I believe there's encouragement, right? Surely Peter's strengthening them with words of encouragement, words of and I think there's just consistency. Don't give up on them. Just keep loving And expect you are a minister, an agent, ambassador of We shouldn't see ourselves as the judge, jury, and executioner of the rebel. Let's have the heart of the shepherd. And when the sheep wanders, the iniquity of that sheep fell on Jesus. He bore the rebel's price so that rebels like us could come back and not be called rebels anymore, but sons and daughters of the living. That is our identity. And I think it's important this morning as we wrap this up, as we close, it's important that you don't see yourself as a rebel when you've returned. Because you are no longer that rebel. You are a son. You are a daughter. As long as you see yourself as that rebel, 
then, then you'll say, what right do I have to talk to them? God will find somebody else that's been better behaved. God will find someone else that stayed loyal. God will find someone that's been consistent. What God is asking is not for perfect people in their own strength. He's asking for somebody that will let themselves just believe that his blood is what perfects us. His righteousness is what makes us right before him. So if we believe that, then I have every right after I've turned, whether it be a day after I turn back, I have every right to turn to you and say, hey, I was there. I was right where you are. Come back with me. This is where the life is. You've been, you've been following Jesus wholeheartedly for five days or five decades. Find the one that need to be strengthened, that need to be reconciled, and let God reconcile them through Amen. Stand up and we're going to pray together.